You know, the best critique is found in asking, how can it work? And I've lived by that. You know, it's easy to trash something, but boy, do you understand something through and through in terms of its shortcomings and its potential. If you first ask, how can this work? And work toward making that idea work. It is one of the most effective approaches to policymaking because you are working with systems and resources, oftentimes finite, and time and space. And with those constraints, you must ask yourself, how can this work? And once you've answered that question, it may be that it can't work, but at least you know all of the things that would need to be met, all of the requirements for it to work if they were available to you. Welcome to the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing podcast, Aging Fast and Slow. This podcast is supported by the National Institute on Aging Pioneer Award. Thanks for listening. We are Dr. Sarah Zanton and Dr. Deidre Cruz, your hosts. For anyone new to our podcast, we speak with scientists, policy experts, and innovators to better understand aging across the life course with a special emphasis on the sustained impact of racism on health the impact this has over the life course, and what can be done to tackle these inequities. In today's episode, we have the privilege of sitting down with Dr. Otis Johnson, Jr., a distinguished scholar and educator at Johns Hopkins University. With his impressive range of expertise spanning health policy, education, and sociology, Dr. Johnson holds the Bloomberg Distinguished Professorship and directs the Institute in Critical Quantitative, Computational, and Mixed Methodologies. Dr. Johnson is a leader in national conversations on the complex intersections of residential stratification and social policy, including educational, housing, and policing policies. This work is of utmost importance for increasing the possibilities of evidence-based social reform. Thank you for joining us today to share your many, I'm sure, valuable insights into these diverse fields. Thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. We're so excited. So let's jump right in. How do you define the concept of structural racism, and how does that differ from institutional racism? And I ask because we've had a lot of guests, all who are working on this problem, and uh, different people define them different ways. So we'd love to hear how you define. Great. And um, thank you for the work that you do, Sarah, Mm -hmm. on that important topic. It's a great question. For me, it's a, a big, complicated question. I, I try to, you know, distill it down to some, some bite sizes. But in this case, you know, structural racism can be thought of as many of those macro social forces, whether it's racism or segregation or income inequality, uh, gender, for example. All of those are ways in which society has been structured hierarchically where some people benefit less than others. So structure really is the way in which society operates according to these aspects of difference. Now, institutional racism, in contrast, tends to happen within systems, whether it's agencies, corporations, schools, for example. But when you think about structural racism and systemic racism at the same time, it gets 
a bit more complex. For example, some people believe that structural racism exists within systems because within mm. schools we'll have tracking, which is often racialized, and we'll have gender differences in STEM. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's an argument, but then others might say, no, we believe that structure really is this constellation of systems, meaning health, education, policing, economy, all of these things forming uh, an ecosystem that could at times, at least in, <laughs> in all times that have been in the U.S., structured life outcomes according to race and to the disadvantage of minoritized populations. Mm. Wow. So you laid out how complex it is, huh? So It is very um, complex. And right now we're... We're trying to understand the units of analysis, right? Because mm. institutions can be embedded within structures. Right. Uh, but then, like I said earlier, some people believe that the structures are embedded within institutions. So there is some cross-classification mm -hmm. here that we need to take into consideration. Mm. Um, so you've written about policing and racism. So certainly the, the U.S. is grappling with these issues of racial justice and policing. So what are some of the nuances of the conversation that, that you've discovered from your work that you wish more people were aware of? Yeah, there are quite a few nuances. And, and my work has tended to look at one aspect of inequality and racial disparity within policing, which would be officer uses of deadly force or fatal interactions with police. What we found in this work and really in working with systems, working with policing agencies, having conversations with lawmakers, is that first, it, it seems that institutional racism has multiple layers of protection in law. And most mm. people are not aware of that, but there's mm. qualified immunity that police benefit from in which their actions while on duty cannot be charged to them as an individual. And then, of course, defense of officer uses of force have relied on fear. Mm. And then there are unions, uh, another layer of defense that frequently try to suppress the release of public video or, or footage and oftentimes come to the aid of officers. Mm. It has created a culture, and maybe that's the second aspect of this, in which it is very hard to change policy and procedure, hmm. but even more difficult to change culture because in order to change culture, you need to get at the individual actors. And as long as the individual actors have these layers of protection, there's no motivation on their part to actually change their behavior. Hmm. And for people who are not as familiar with the work as you are, when you mention fear, is that the, if an officer was in fear of, for their life, that, that the standard yes. is different? Right. One of these layers of protection is the use of, of a fear defense, mm -hmm. where the officer suggests that they shot an individual because they feared for their lives. And we all know that policing is a difficult work, and we appreciate the work that police do. But at the same time, fear is 
somewhat of a bona fide occupational qualification here. You will be in fear yeah. as a police officer. So it can't be a standard mm-hmm. for police conduct. There has to be some professional standard that we can hold them to mm-hmm. that isn't just wiped away because an officer had some fear. Right. And that is, that's been probably one of the most frustrating outcomes of many of these legal challenges to police brutality is that the fear defense is often used and it often is compelling with juries. Wow. Um, I had the same question, Sarah, so I'm glad you raised that. So switching to neighborhoods and schools, you've done so much work about neighborhoods and schools and public policy relating to social inequity and the youth development and status of African-American populations in terms of learning and public policy and, and health. But for people who are newly thinking about this, Can you draw us a little picture about the connection between where people, some might say, happen to live or were redlined into living or where people do live Mm -hmm. and their educational opportunities and how that feeds into their structured life opportunities? I often start an explanation about this connection with the reality that everything happens someplace, Mm -hmm. including your health. And with that, we know that within neighborhoods, for example, exposure to to surveillance technologies and law enforcement, those things are experienced at greater rates within neighborhoods that are racially segregated. They tend to be over-policed and have higher occurrence of officer use of forces. So then that leads to the fact that death by legal intervention is among the leading causes of death of African-Americans. I believe it's the fifth leading cause of death for African-American males in particular. But then also when you think about neighborhoods, there's also exposure to surveillance technologies within schools that vary according to place. Once again, there are some suburban schools where you wouldn't have that type of surveillance technology. As a matter of fact, they have open campuses where you can actually change buildings or go off campus for lunch, which is a very different dynamic than you have in urban schools. And this leads to spatial variation in arrest rates. And of course, we all know Mm -hmm. that being arrested is one of the most consequential health events one can experience. It disconnects you from work, which then disconnects you from whatever health benefits you had. Um, You are incarcerated, and if you have chronic illnesses, then of course it's harder for you to receive treatment and effective treatment within uh, carceral institutions. So that's just another way in which the school-to-prison pipeline leads kids to unequal health access and health disparities later on. And then also within schools, there's a higher likelihood, especially within urban contexts, of experiencing something we call medicated social control. And in this case, medicated social control is the higher rates of diagnosis of ADHD and prescriptions for Ritalin within these places that are more likely to say that kids have problematic behavior. And oftentimes, those kids are African-American, Latinx, minoritized. So here we just have this confluence of race, health and neighborhood impacting kids in their neighborhoods and schools that lead to to really high disparities and lifelong consequences in terms of health. Hmm. Wow. So 
Otis, we've been really excited. One, we've been excited since you've uh, joined Hopkins, so now some time ago, but also really excited to get connected with you and just wanted to maybe hear you opine a bit about ways that we could address some of these educational inequalities as a bridge to mitigating some of the health inequities that certainly Sarah and I uh, spend a lot of our time working in. So how, what are some ways that you could see these educational interventions helping? The first way definitely is by addressing the health inequities that kids experience mm. while they're in school mm. yeah. that extend from systemic and structural mm-hmm. racism. I always think of the Flint water crisis. Yeah. In this case, where we actually had a heavily African-American populated center taken over by a governor who robbed them of their self-governance and their ability to make decisions about their water supply, that then led to this lead contamination within their water supply, which, of course, affects kids' learning abilities And it also exposed at that time that they had one nurse Mm. that was traveling between all of those schools and that at certain times when kids came and had a medical issue, they actually trained the secretaries to dispense Mm. uh, aspirin to the kids instead of a, a trained professional. And so... We know that there are these inequities that are within schools today that we need to get at. This also brings me to this other concern that we're having now, you know, fast forwarding to today, with well-being mental health crisis that's happening within schools. Mm. Of course, it it requires an end to systemic racism and a focus on trauma-informed care and practices. And I'm happy mm-hmm. cities like Baltimore have adopted trauma-informed care and practices as a standard. So there are ways that we can start looking at schools as sites where kids receive mental and health services and just, just overall care. I can't stress that enough that it's something that's not happening to the level it should within urban centers. Mm. Thank you. Um, we're going to switch to affirmative action now. The Supreme Court, as we all know, recently struck down affirmative action in college admissions, declaring race cannot be a factor in admissions. Have you thought about what tools might be available to schools to achieve diverse student bodies that will be prepared to lead diverse societies? I have, and it's it's going to take a lot. But let let me just start with my list, because my list is, is quite long here, but... <laughs> Of course, we need to get rid of legacy admissions. There now is a lawsuit that is challenging that practice within schools. It's been dubbed white affirmative action for decades now because we know it is a process in which kids who happen to be white are admitted to schools for which their test scores or other admissions criteria doesn't merit their admission. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I think we still should be looking at. But more importantly, college campuses need to think of K-12 as not just sites of recruitment, but also for cultivation. Mm -hmm. Universities need to be proactive in generating a diverse student body, which means any strategy to do so that involves a submitted application that's already too late. Mm. We need to be thinking about not just the summer bridge programs, but forming partnerships with diverse K-12 institutions to make sure kids K-12 
can meet whatever admissions requirement and also the admissions officers and application reviewers, they still need to be trained with principles that align with diversity and inclusion. And then lastly, I would say once kids get to these universities, we need to create environments that sustain them, that make them feel affirmed, Mm -hmm. that are culturally enriching, and treats them as individuals with assets that are vital to their success. That requires a number of other things, such as a diverse faculty and so forth. So do you see how this is a huge project? And, And while I do believe there are things we can do to respond to the latest Supreme Court ruling, it actually requires us to do something we've never committed to in the first place. Mm-hmm. True. And True. so if we can ever do it, now is the time when the consequences of not doing it are the greatest. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, we we said in our intro, Otis, that you are leading this exciting institute. And so wanted to give you an opportunity, because I'm sure our listeners will be interested in hearing about the Institute in Critical, Quantitative, Computational, and Mixed Methodologies. And maybe for the many people who are conducting research in, in the area of structural racism, how they might find the work you all are doing at the Institute relevant to their work. Another great question, a timely question, because we are now trying to make that connection, because the Institute yeah. is... It's a National Science Foundation Data Science Institute. So it's awarded Mm. to us through the National Science Foundation with the mission of increasing access to and enriching research about Latinx, Indigenous, and Black populations. Mm -hmm. Because we know that there's a big disparity when it comes to our researchers and our faculty who use any of the six branches of AI and also traditional quantitative methods in their work. So we we want to correct that. And we also want it to be critical, meaning we want research that actually will move the needle in terms of a lot of these disparities. So not just giving out the the skills and access to the training, Mm -hmm. but also equipping them with the frameworks, the theoretical premises and structures, and the, the conversations and the research questions that we think are are really needed to bring about some social transformation. ICQCM, as it's called for short, <laughs> now has about 4,000 affiliates in 23 different countries. Wow. And I think, I'm hopeful, fingers crossed, that we will be renewed for our next three years. But our work continues. We had 80 trainees, mostly faculty members, but also a, a cohort of doctoral students funded by the Spencer Foundation. Also, the William T. Grant Foundation sponsored a cohort of advanced quantitative and computational scholars. And we keep them for two to three years of training so that we make sure that there's a community of practice and continued resources and support to transform their work. Mm. Very exciting. And do you think some of the people will work on structural racism issues? And I'm asking selfishly because part of what we're trying to do is get big data and use it in a theoretically sound way to try to measure all those different domains you mentioned earlier about education and policing and civic participation all into measures about structural racism. Well, that's... Thanks for that reminder because that was part of the initial question. (laughs) I, 
It is a great opportunity for us to think about the advances in data science as facilitating or opening new pathways forward in the examination of structural and systemic racism. Mm -hmm. There's a big conversation about whether we should have scales versus some other AI-based approach, perhaps with synthetic data or some other application. Then there are others who have already moved into actual methods. We need to do more of that. We need to be creating more methods that allow us to do things related to critical theories such as intersectionality that have not been done in the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's time for methods, procedure, and statistical reasoning and computational practices around language to undertake new vocabularies and new procedure related to these socially transformative theories and ideas. Mm. Well, we will be following up with you about that because we're at a point in the data uh, journey where we we need some more perspectives like yours. So thank you. So so Otis, what would you say, uh, you're doing so much wonderful work, what would you say are the implications for for policymakers and, and educators? So my work is in the area of social policy. So Mm -hmm. I tend to look at either housing policy, educational policy, or policing. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens all of those are critical to understanding, again, what I mentioned earlier as perhaps an ecosystem of, of systems, right? Of systems that have pretty horrific histories about racial equity and being racist and discriminatory, housing, especially with redlining and ghettoization, steering within realtor marketing practices, unequal extension of mortgage loan capital. All of these things were disadvantaging Black communities Mm -hmm. and also increasing the concentration of poverty within their neighborhoods. Same way with schools. So then schools draw from these neighborhoods in which they've been involuntarily assigned according to their race. Mm -hmm. So then we've created schools based on a racially discriminatory housing market. Mm -hmm. And then within those schools, we put in more law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So you see how all of these things are connected. It's really the African-American story of their American experience these three areas. Mm. I mean, there are others, but it's so vital for us to understand just these three and how they intersect to change a lot of the policy practices and policy problems that have been longstanding and uh, unfortunately haven't moved in the direction far enough uh, in which we need them to. Yeah. So if you had um, a magic wand and all the time in the world. Let's say you're suddenly on sabbatical without any of your administrative responsibilities, any of your recruitment, any of your mentoring that you're doing, except for the kind that feeds your soul, um, and no responsibilities at home except for perhaps to your two big dogs, and you, you knew you had like a year. What, what, what would you tackle next in your research with, with time and money in mental space? Well, I've done some collaborating with Google And they were interested in generating a community-informed AI uh, that could be more culturally responsive. Mm -hmm. But I think the larger need that that project spoke to 
it would be wonderful for us to spend more time, and this is what I would do, understanding these technologies and how it will serve or be a challenge to minoritized mm-hmm. communities. We're talking about chat GPT right now, but mm-hmm. the question of well, what does this mean for the African-American single mother who has some college and would like to continuously upgrade, especially professionally, so that she could send her kids to college? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What does chat GPT do for that situation for her? And I don't know that we've asked the question. And maybe someone has, because, you know, I can't read everything (laughs) all the time. But the point is, that's a burning question that I have. And I definitely would be interested in working on that, provided what Sarah said, (laughs) that I have all the time in the world, right? And money. He's more time than I currently do. Right. That's great. So... When, when you think about your own trajectory, which of course has been stellar, um, what, what guidance would you offer to the next generation of, of researchers working in the, a similar space as to what you work in? I just want to say persistence when you have every doubt is the only way that, you know, I've you know, made it work uh, to the extent I have. I, I think right now the academy is a really precarious place for uh, especially the, the minoritized scholar because it is at a time when knowledge and science is not really being listened to very much. It is not a sexy thing. Mm-hmm. Now we have affirmative action rulings, which I think may make it harder for individuals to enter those spaces. Mm. We have DEI under attack and anti-CRT and woke legislation that is impacting public higher education institutions. So I'm bringing all these things up to say it is looking kind of dim. And so I want to encourage those who want to pursue a, a similar line of work or a pathway into research to focus on your question Focus on your passion. Give yourself the sustenance needed outside of your professional space. Even when balance is something that's an aspiration as opposed to a reality, (laughs) make time for you and then definitely build your communities. Your communities will help you get through all of these milestones and these, these hurdles as you make your way toward whatever fulfills you and whatever sustains you and hopefully whatever makes the world a better place. Wow. Great. Well, we like to finish with asking for one of the most valuable pieces of advice you've ever received. And you may have just given the advice that you received, <laughs> but if, if there's another one, we'd love to hear um, a mm. piece of advice that you received that you found really valuable. There are so many great little words of wisdom I've read. I mean, Audre Lorde probably is the one that I reflect on daily, but that I've received personally from my dissertation advisor, the late David Cohen, he mentioned to me one day, he said, you know, the best critique is found in asking how can it work? Mm. And I've lived by that. You know, it's easy to trash something, but boy, do you understand something through and through in terms of its shortcomings and its potential. 
if you first ask, how can this work? And work toward making that idea work. Mm, that's beautiful. And it is one of the most effective approaches to policymaking and really in management because you, you are working with systems and resources, oftentimes finite, and time and space. And with those constraints, you must ask yourself, how can this work? Mm. And once you've answered that question, it may be that it can't work. But at least you know all of the things that would need to be met, all of the requirements for it to work if they were available to you. I'm reading a book called Magic Words right now. And one of the points it makes is leaders often ask, what should we do in a situation? And if you ask, what could we do? It opens up the possibilities a lot more than between, you know, A and B. Mm -hmm. And it's related to, you know, how, how could it work? What, what could we do? Yeah. That's beautiful. And do you have a favorite Audre Lorde quote you'd, you'd share? Or The one I've been grappling with most right now is the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Mm. Because I was like, well, that's exactly what Altazir was saying when he said that structures will never undermine the edifice from which they rise. And I'm grappling with that now in this piece in which I'm, I'm trying to articulate a way forward for critical quantitative and computational science. Thank you, Dr. Johnson, for sharing your deep insights on this important topic. Check out our website, nursing.jhu.edu backslash agingfastandslow for the articles and resources referenced in the episode. And if you have comments, questions, or guest suggestions, reach out to us at agingfastandslow at jhu.edu. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend, rate it, or write us a review. Special thanks to Jennifer McCord for editing and sound design, Rafe Reggie and Florentina Costaca for technical expertise, Brian Fitzek for production, and Tim Carl and Danielle Kress for web design. See you next time on Aging Fast and Slow.